Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this bite-sized episode of Life Lessons from Sports and Beyond with me, Simon Mundy, where I seek to explore life's bigger questions. Hello, thank you for joining me again. So Wimbledon is starting today. I'll be down there working for BBC TV, so keep your eyes peeled. But the point of this episode really is to challenge the idea that winning is the only thing that matters. And in sport... And in life, it can be quite a pervasive idea. But if that was actually true, that winning was all that matters, then out of the 120 people that entered the men's and women's singles draws at Wimbledon, 127 of them would be, by definition, losers. And clearly that's not the case. Similarly, in life, the idea that if you don't reach the very top or don't change the world, you're worth less is absurd. People's value is inherent and intrinsic. And this was an idea I explored with Kath Bishop, herself an Olympic silver medalist in rowing, also a former diplomat, now author of The Long Win and a speaker. And here's what she had to say on the subject. The belief is that anything is okay in the pursuit of an outcome, Um, that there are no values, if you like, that trump that There are no considerations of what matters beyond that. It's again, it's this narrowness that the medal all can be justified in pursuit of it. And and there are lots of phrases we use in sport that now I see as really quite sinister Mm. around, you know, are you willing to do what it takes? I remember people asking me that. I remember coaches asking me that. And it was seen as a really positive thing. It's the sort of language you hear in movies, in Rocky, and, you know, how tough are you? Are you willing to do what it takes? But actually now that phrase for me is very sinister because then there's no bar on what you might do. You get into a point where you will do anything and you want to prove that you are willing to do anything. And that's when you can get into all sorts of really compromised situations. 
Uh, most obviously, you know, in, in some cases, in some contexts, that might mean drugs. But actually, it's pretty sinister just in a context where it means, you know, you, you no longer have an identity or a self-worth beyond that medal. You no longer have a sense that you matter if, you know, if you don't win. And that's pretty damaging, too, to any individual. Absolutely. So in terms of your own life, then, obviously, you were a very elite rower. Why did you get into rowing? How and why did you get into rowing? So I think I probably had a slightly unconventional route into sport. And that's perhaps also why I've challenged it and always felt a little uncomfortable with some of it, because I didn't really grow up as a very sporty child with all of this language being part of who I was. And I got into rowing by chance at university. I hadn't actually wanted to do it because it looked like it was really hard work and involved getting up early in the morning. Uh, so anyway, I did initially didn't sign up to do it, but I got roped into it a few weeks later by people who were becoming my friends and were loving it. And there was a huge bars and a camaraderie and they needed an eighth person because someone had got injured for three weeks so they could do this sort of novice race. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll give it a go, you know, for a couple of days, see how it goes. And the lovely thing about actually joining a sport in such an inauspicious way was that I was literally thinking, am I going to enjoy this or not? Mm. I was not thinking, am I going to be good? Are we going to win this novice race? Am I going to go to the Olympics? I mean, nothing could have been further from my mind that first morning as I you know, was obviously hopeless, as we all are when we do something for the first time. But what I did latch onto was just a real but this is a fun thing to do. It's really different. It's challenging me physically, mentally. I liked the combination you have in rowing where you're trying to get the best out of yourself individually, but always in a way that works with being in time with everyone around you. And then you have that sort of third layer of the environment you're in. So you're always balancing that sort of individual team and the environment piece, the water, the weather, responding to that, being alert to to what that means. And I liked that sort of balancing of those three levels all the time. And I loved being on the water. I loved the feeling of the mm. boat moving over the water. And that was always what I loved. And there were days sort of 10 years later when I was training for the Olympics when it was miserable and it was cold and I was being shouted at and I was going slowly and I was exhausted and I was maybe a little bit on the edge of, you know, sort of burnout. But there was still a part of me going, oh, you know, I, I'm probably going to retire tomorrow. I'm probably out or I'm going to be deselected tomorrow. But do you know what? I love being on the river. And it was almost like my little secret. Isn't this an amazing place to be? You know, throughout all the weather, throughout all of the, the year, it's what enabled me to endure, you know, some of that, that kind of uh, brutality of, of that world. And, you know, I think certainly one expects high performance to be tough. I'm not against that at all. But I think, you know, as we've talked about, it's the, um, the sort of the belittling side of it. It's the self-esteem part. It's your identity part that you start to lose. Um, but I'm so grateful that really what what got me through and what still connects me to the sport is that I fundamentally love being on a boat on the river. So you love the water, you love being on the boat on the river. So is it fair to say, at least in the early days, it was about then sort of exploration and enjoyment over expectation, a.k.a. outcome? I mean, totally. Again, there was there was no sense of I want to go to the Olympics. There was a sort of ridiculous concept. There was a, a small sense that people are going, oh, you could get to the next level. You know, you could kind of get from this college boat to a university boat, and and the next step was there. And thinking, okay, that that that's that 
that's manageable, that looks okay, it's not that different from where I am. And also that's going to help me to develop further. So again, you know, the, the, I, I love the search for the, the perfect stroke that you never take, that utopian perfect rowing stroke, which is going to be like the, the perfect forehand. Yeah. You, know, you never do it. And, and you get hooked into that, thinking about how can I just, how can I get closer to it? So that was drawing me on the sense of, you know, how do I improve all the time? And that became the engine then that took me through the levels. And then eventually, you know, then I'm suddenly on this path to the Olympics. But at that point, it was a real shock because this, uh, the, the culture shifted and, and people were literally saying to me, don't, don't expect to have fun anymore. Now you're a serious athlete. You know that stuff at the university where you're having fun. This isn't like that. And it shouldn't be like that. So this is different. And I remember thinking, oh, I... I, what do I know? Okay, I've got to learn to be miserable and I've got to learn to suffer more. That's good. That's a good thing. I've got to learn, you know, this this sort of macho narrative that you're, you know, you're willing to do whatever it takes and the, the harder, the better and be the last person standing. And, you know, and if you lose, oh my goodness, it's the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I found myself like learning Oh, okay. That's that's the rules of this world, but actually, it wasn't helping me go faster. That's so interesting, and that really reminds me of a conversation I had when I was working at Wimbledon last year, doing the players' interviews. I interviewed um, Barbara Krejcikova. Now she was she's from the Czech Republic, so she was a doubles specialist initially. And then she surprised everyone by winning the 2021 French Open singles uh, title. Mm-hmm. And, um, anyway, I think she got through to the quarters at Wimbledon and I had a fascinating chat with her after the, I think it was the fourth round of quarters. And I asked her why she'd suddenly enjoyed this, um, it, success in singles that had previously been elusive. And she said that she noticed that when she was playing mixed doubles, which tends to have perhaps be a little more or can be a little more lighthearted than for Mm. example uh, doubles or singles she noticed that when she went in there with that well I'm just going to enjoy this attitude she tended to play well so she then said well I'm going to transport this attitude to the singles court and lo and behold she went and won the French Open so this idea that you just uh, relayed from that you were being told about you're not going to enjoy this anymore not only is it unhealthy, it actually is not a recipe for success either. You know, if you're having fun, if you're enjoying yourself, if you're not obsessed and worried about, oh goodness, if I lose my self-worth's at stake, actually not only are you going to enjoy it more, not only are you going to have more longevity, but it's quite possible you're more likely to succeed as well. Absolutely. And it's the shift, isn't it, from a world of fear-based motivation to exploring the joy. I think we've seen Naomi Osaka go Mm. through a similar process of uh, getting to a place where she's just deeply unhappy. And she herself will say, I was too obsessed with rankings and I want to try and learn how to enjoy it again. And, And isn't that sad that you've got to a place where you've forgotten how to have fun on the court from something that you did originally fall in love with and found you had a talent for. Let me go back to this joy point because quite often people will say, what's your favourite moment? What's the highlight of your own career? And and even they might follow up by saying, you know, which which medal? And Mm. and I 
if you immediately, when I'm asked, you know, what's that, that moment of joy, I am taken immediately instinctively back to a couple of training camps where we're on this beautiful lake in Italy, surrounded by mountains, and the boat flies. We're in perfect synchronicity, and it feels amazing. It feels mm. effortless, like that quote from Goldie. And, you know, I cannot... I've rarely experienced a sort of joy at that level. Beautiful water, beautiful, you know, I'm in a great place physically, individually. I'm in sync with my rowing partner. We're in sync with the water. We're moving, you know, the boat is sort of at one with the water. It feels great. Absolute joy. That for me is such a special part of, you know, what I experience and what I'm grateful for. You know, you stand on a podium, usually you're dehydrated, you're exhausted, you know, there's some relief. There's this sort of sense of the aftermath of the pressure temporarily off your shoulders. It's not often pure joy. Um, and we see that, you know, more and more. And actually, as the pressure increases, the more of a favorite you are, the less joy there is, the more mm-hmm. you've just got that sense of, oh, thank God, the relief. Um, and often, you know, it's people watching who experience more joy than people actually doing it. So, you know, I think it is really important to think, you know, again, of, you're getting something at sport beyond that moment of of the outcome. And for us to show that through the narratives, through the stories we tell, through the journalism that we use. Uh, I mean, I was actually met up with Goldie recently, and, and it's a great example of how when we get together, we have lots of stories that we share across our sports or moments and thinking about stories going on at the moment. We don't sit there and discuss our own results. We don't sit there and bring our mm. medals. We don't, you know, this sense that it's all about the medals. But whenever I get together with old teammates, that's not what you talk about. That's not the stuff that you remember. That's not the stuff you connect over. The things that made you feel alive, the things that connected you to your sport. And so why can't we transmit some of that beyond? Why do we only tell the story of the medals? You mentioned this sort of medal table piece. And I find it just getting a little dull now that we can't move away from that. Um, and even though that there's a, a half-hearted attempt to say it's about more than medals, what you've done is still define it in terms of medals because you haven't defined it what more than means and you're still stuck in a medal narrative. So we seem to be unable to get out of this sort of circular narrative that in itself is a bit meaningless. So I think we won two medals in the Winter Olympics. We only ever are going to, you know, it's an yeah. amazing year to win six. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'd have been really happy with four um so really is that is that what we're going to sit and talk about yeah um, what about the incredible stories of what we saw out there what about the integrity of athletes who did you know the risks that athletes took uh you know the experiences they had in these kind of death defying sports that they're doing there's so much out there and there is no evidence that suggests that the british nation suffers if we win slightly less medals, you know, think about the summer, we're chasing, you know, 60 plus medals. And sure, you know, in Atlanta, we won kind of one gold medal and and just a a handful. Okay, that's not that doesn't replicate, uh, represent what what our nation is capable of. I, you know, I get that that's a reason to go hang on, we can do things better. But now the sense that the nation cares, whether it's 40 or 50 or 60, I just don't get that. I think the nation cares more about the quality of the stories of the 40 or 50 or however many it is. And we don't want to see people abused along the way. And we don't want to have people coming out with mental health issues. And we need to think about the quality of the narratives we're putting out.
Thank you for listening to this episode with Kath Bishop. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and could share it, I'd be very grateful. Also, please do get in touch with any thoughts via my website, simonmundy.com. Until next time, goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.